You can't go to a, a cocktail party or a dinner or anything without being asked how lawyers can represent uh, these criminals. And frankly, people who aren't lawyers, they only hear about the big cases, the worst cases. Uh, they don't hear about the times where you defend somebody who is actually not guilty, which happens. Um, and so, yeah, they get a bad rap. And frankly, this is a this is about a 400-page answer to the question: How can you represent somebody like that? That's what the book is. This is Lawyer to Lawyer the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a beautiful Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from a dismal Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> uh, where it's raining and uh, and pretty miserable today. Uh, I read a you blog a called theme here, Bob? This, this, huh? We do this all. Well, you notice the theme here? We do this all the time. It's always sunny in Southern California, and it's almost always dismal in Rockport. Yeah, we we like it this way. What can I say? Uh, Hey, well, I read, a blog. I read a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and Craig, I know you wrote a blog too. Yeah, may it please the court. And we'd also like to take time to thank our sponsor, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And, and you know what? Uh, before we get started, I just want to take a second to congratulate uh, Louis-Anne Reeve. Louis-Anne is the uh, founder and president of the Legal Talk Network, uh, the program that hosts this show. Uh, just this week, I was privileged to be part of a, a, a ceremony in Massachusetts where the Massachusetts Bar Foundation gave Louis-Anne uh, its President's Award for her, her contributions to justice uh, uh, over the years. Uh, and uh, so congratulations to Louis-Anne for that. Yeah, we'd love to congratulate Luann for her accomplishments, and this is a big one, so good for her. Way to go. And uh, as long as we're uh, patting people on the back, I'm going to break my arm and uh, announce that I just got named as a top-rated white-collar criminal defense lawyer by the American Lawyer Media and uh, Martindale Hubble. Oh, congratulations, Craig. Great. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but anyway. It means you you got your shirts laundered well, I guess. I think so. (laughs) So let's get uh, into well, the show, uh, Bob. Turning to more serious topics, yeah. We have a very serious topic to talk about today. We're going to talk about what it's like to defend one of America's most notorious serial killers. Uh, John Wayne Gacy was convicted and sentenced to death for killing 30 young men and teenagers between 1972 and 1978. Before he went on trial, he called on a young attorney uh, who uh, to defend him in court, and that attorney is one of our guests today. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk to the co-authors of the book, John Wayne Gacy, Defending a Monster, and talk about defending a serial killer and the constitutional right to a defense. The book centers around Gacy, but more importantly, it's a story about the law and the United States Constitution. Uh, joining us first today is Sam L. Amarante, a retired judge and lawyer uh, his first case after leaving the office of the public defender in Illinois was the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy. During the Gacy trial, uh, Sam was interviewed on various local and national nightly news programs every single evening for months. 
during his career, he's gone on to represent thousands of persons charged with felony and misdemeanor crimes as an attorney, and he's presided uh, from the bench over tens of thousands of cases as a judge, uh, making him a nationally recognized expert on these issues. Uh, we'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Judge Sam L. Amarante. Hey, Bob. Hi, Craig. It's good to be here. And it's always sunny in Chicago, by the way. <laughs> and there's a story for you. And uh, Bob, our, our next guest is retired lawyer Danny Broderick. Uh, Danny and I met a couple of years ago here in Southern California. He founded the law firm of the law offices of Daniel J. Broderick during his 20 years of private practice. Danny represented thousands of persons charged with felony and misdemeanor crimes. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you. Good to hear your voice, Craig. Always good to hear yours. Well, Sam, let's start with you. As I understand the uh, the, the story, uh, John Wayne Gacy was uh, was a, a client of yours on some other matters, and he he came into your office one day and pretty much started to confess to a really horrible string of crimes. Yeah, well, that happened that uh, quite that quickly. He uh, he wasn't really a client. I I was doing some work for the local um, medical organization uh, in Norwood Park Township, and Gacy was a trustee on the street lighting district and active in local politics. And when he was being tailed, uh, he called me. I had just left the public defender's office to go into private practice. So I was sitting there uh, basically waiting for a phone call, and uh, the call came in, and it was from my secretary at the public defender's office uh, telling me that a guy named John Gacy wanted to talk to me. He said he knew me, and uh, he wanted to ask me something. I said, give him my number. Come into office, and he called me, and he, uh, I knew who he was. He obviously knew who I was. He said, hey, Sam, can you do me a favor? And I said, sure, John, what do you need? Anything. And uh, next thing I knew, I was in the middle of this huge case. He didn't tell me what was going on right away. He just was trying to get the police department off his back, uh, failing him because they were ruining his business, he told me. And uh, then I found myself in the, in the middle of the case. And so, Danny, how did you, how did you and Judge Sam get together to write this book? Uh, I worked with Sam. I was uh, proud to be an associate of the famous law firm of Amaranti and Etchingham about a hundred years ago. This was back in the eighties, and then Sam uh, became a judge, and I opened my own practice. And years went by. Uh, I wrote a little book, a little novel that he came across, and although we hadn't seen each other for a while, we kind of hooked back up again, and as a result of that novel and him having read that uh, that I can write a little, uh, he we just decided to collaborate on this, and frankly, he had had um, a couple of attempts to do this prior, and what really worked with us was that we knew each other very well. I knew him uh, and I also, the fact that I was a lawyer, I think, because other people believed that uh, a defense attorney takes a case like this um, begrudgingly or, or, you know, he has to do it. And uh, that was not the case. And uh, Sam was Sam was actually proud to represent uh, the Constitution of the United States in, you know, as a byproduct of representing John Wayne Gacy. Well, Sam, did you ever have any? Did you ever have any second thoughts about it? I mean, it, it, as you began, as these events began to unfold, and you began to realize what this case was about, what were you thinking as a young criminal defense lawyer? Okay, first thing, you know, Danny didn't tell you. 
is when he met me, or before the Gacy case, I was six foot four inches, now I was five foot two inches. So it was, uh, you know, it took a lot out of me. But uh, as far as second thoughts, uh, never. You know, I really didn't have time. I was a young lawyer. It was my only case. I worked on it for 15 months, day in and day out, 24-7. And I never had time to think about giving me second thoughts about being on the case. I dove into it. Uh, I was there to defend his rights, uh, defend uh, every person's rights under the Constitution. And, and nobody was going to deter me. You know, my background, as you probably know, I was in the Marine Corps. And, you know, we fight to the to the death. And I let that be known to everybody at the time that uh, I was his lawyer. He was going to get the best defense he, he could get. In our book, you know, we talk about the pro in our prologue about John Adams and uh, his representation of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre. You know, he took on that case against all popularity and against his cousin Sam Adams' wishes uh, uh, for him to take on a case. The British soldiers would have been comparable to terrorists nowadays. But he did it, because that's what we lawyers do. And I picked Danny to write this with me, because, like me, Danny is a true believer in what we do. A true believer in the Constitution, true believer in our flag, true believer in our country. And that's what we lawyers, who are worth our salt as lawyers, do. And I never... Uh, I would never shy away from that, and I know neither would you too. Right, and I'm hearing, Sam, I'm hearing your answer is one of, you know, he's entitled to a defense. The, the quintessential question that you always get as a lawyer, especially defending someone of, of John Wayne Gacy's ilk, uh, that you, you know, how could you do such a thing? But, you know, you're right. You, he has the right to a defense. But, Danny, do, do defense attorneys get a bad rap because of that? Uh as you probably know, you can't go to a, a cocktail party or a dinner or anything without being asked how lawyers can represent uh, these criminals. And frankly, people who aren't lawyers, they only hear about the big cases, the worst cases. Uh, they don't hear about the times where you defend somebody who is actually not guilty, which happens. Um, and so, yeah, they get a bad rap. And frankly, this is a this is about a 400-page answer to the question: How can you represent somebody like that? That's what the book is. You know, you know, they get a bad rap on, until somebody needs a defense lawyer themselves. Then you're their, you know, then you're their hero. Then they want you to do that. Then, of course, they're innocent or they're presumed innocent. Now, everybody gives a defense lawyer a bad rap. You know, I, I explain it with an analogy all the time, and that's with a physician. If John Gacy were to, uh, when he was alive, become sick or dying, nobody would question the doctor's duty to save his life. And that's what the doctor would do because he takes a Hippocratic oath. We lawyers take an oath to defend and protect the Constitution, and that's what we do. So we don't think twice, and, and we're not the judges. We're not the jury. We're there to defend the rights of the accused. And, and I don't think, we, you know, it's second nature to us. I don't think we ever really think about it. And uh, just like a doctor doesn't think about it, who they are operating on, who they are treating, they just know that it's their duty to, to save that person and take care of that person. That's what we do. Judge Sam, let's let's go back 30 years. Let's take you back to the time when you're sitting down in your office. John Wayne Gacy is there. You're 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 in the midst of the trial or just before trial. And he's sitting there talking to you, telling you about the circumstances of what's gone on. To the extent that you can, relate to us what kind of feeling and what kind of pain and what kind of individual John Wayne Gacy is. Give us an idea about the insight that you had into this man. We well, you know, the scariest thing about John Gacy, and we talked about that some in the book, you know, he, he was not a scary person at all. 
John was a very affable, very likable, very engaging person and personality. Everybody who knew him liked him. And that's the John Gacy I knew. That's the John Gacy whose reputation, that's the reputation he had in the community. And then he looked at me eyeball to eyeball after I had, I yelled and screamed at him about the evidence that was, was building up against him and, and questioning him about some things I learned about him. Then he looked at me after taking a couple of uh, shots of VO, I believe. He looked at me eyeball to eyeball, maybe five feet away from me, across three feet away from me, and said he was a judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people. And he wanted to tell me how it all happened. And he described in detail every murder from the first one to the last one. And, and my heart just jumped, you know, jumped out of my chest. I, I just, as a young lawyer, I was 30 years old. I, I was thinking of all the implications, and I couldn't say anything, and it just, it aged me. I aged tremendously that, that one night in my office, and uh, when I went home after it was all done, I could tell you, I felt like almost like a rape victim would feel. I felt dirty. I felt like I had the sins of the world on me. I was like showering, trying to get this off me, but at the same time, knowing I had to do a job as his lawyer, and that was to uh, send him the best I could, but it was just a, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible night, especially to find that this man, who everybody thought was really a good guy, uh, was just a classic Jekyll and Hyde. And, uh, and then I had to decide what to do and how to do it and which way to go about it. So it was. Uh, have you shaken that feeling since? Um, I have, uh, to the extent as I really don't think about that until I'm asked a question. But even to this day, when you ask me that question, I give you the answer. I can immediately, I, I immediately go back to that time when, uh, when that happened, you know, I just, it's just something that never, ever goes away, never goes away. Did you think that you would ever face that kind of a situation as a lawyer? Oh, no. I mean, I dealt as a public defender for four and a half years before that. I had dealt with some pretty, uh, you know, pretty strange cases and pretty, some pretty strange individuals and some real heavy criminals. Uh, people were accused of some serious crimes. But I mean that, I mean, you know, the, the magnet, just the magnitude alone was, was mind-boggling. And he, he told me where the bodies were, he threw me maps, and he wanted me to go see him. I had these ethical things where if I went to see where the bodies were, then I would know where the evidence was, and as an officer in the court, when I have to disclose that. And, I mean, there's so many different considerations and so many things that were popping into my mind, uh, just just inundating me with that. And uh, I never thought I would see that, and frankly, I've never seen that since. That's really a once-in-a-lifetime situation, I, I would hope. And Danny, you have to take that 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 feeling and put it into words and put it on paper, which you've done an excellent job in. By the way, the book is fantastic. How? Thanks. Where do you find the? Where do you find the depth to do that? Uh, I, you know, my closeness to Sam. I, you know, he was, he is my mentor. I, my first job out of law school was with. Sam and his partner Jim Etchingham, who also uh, who actually just retired from the bench. Um, knowing him and having heard the stories uh, throughout the years that we worked together, I had a feel for this case. So it was a good book for me to write, and I just tried to convey, uh, you know, the feeling of what it would be like to be in that room and have uh, this man start confessing all this stuff. And then later on in the book, really convey the feeling of what it's like to be involved in a case of that magnitude, what it's like in the courtroom, what it's like outside, miles and miles and miles of uh, of cable and trucks and, uh, you know, uh, what it was like 
to be involved in, at the time, the case of the century. Judge, tell us how the how the to defense teams and the prosecution teams uh, compared against each other. I mean, in, in your book, you've kind of talked about this as a, as a David versus Goliath situation. Uh, how did this play out in the courtroom? Well, in the courtroom, we, uh, you know, we liked Lawrence, especially Bill Kunkel and I. You know, the prosecution team was composed of uh, Bill Kunkel, a veteran prosecutor, also prosecutor Henry Brisbane and a few other uh, pretty bad guys from the area up here. And Gary Sullivan, who was the chief prosecutor in the northwest suburban area, Bob Egan, who is still a prosecutor, uh, Bill's a judge now and Terry's a uh, defense lawyer. Bob Egan, who's now with the Attorney General's office, and Jim Farga, a young lawyer, had a good, strong, solid, experienced uh, prosecution team. And Bill and I, in particular, used to lock horns in, in the courtroom. We talked to the jurors afterward, and they thought they thought that Kunkel and I absolutely hated each other so many times when we locked horns. It took the gloves off like a couple of hockey players going at each other. But um, in reality, uh, all of those guys and I are, are great friends to this day. Uh, you know, and you know, as lawyers, when you practice in the courtroom, you can't take anything personally. We fought hard in the courtroom, but afterward, you go out and have a uh, have a, a beer together, have a you know whatever, a cup of coffee, you know whatever. You go out and enjoy and talk about it. And to this day, actually, Terry Sullivan and I have become great friends over the years. And uh, when you go through a trial like that. You develop almost a camaraderie with the opposite side, the police, the investigators, our investigators, um, because, you know, you've been through this war together. You just feel like you've been through a war and a, a tremendous battles together, and you have those battle scars that you gave to each other, but there's a there's a tremendous aura of respect and, and dignity, if, of course, you handle yourself in a dignified manner. Um, and so we've, we've kept a lasting friendship in spite of our adversarial beginnings. And Danny, despite the book being named John Wayne Gacy, there's an undercurrent of another character in the book, the United States Constitution, the Sixth Amendment. It's almost as if we're getting an education in the in the Constitution. What was your thought on that thread of your book? Uh, like Sam mentioned, I'm a true believer. I I am. Uh, I still get a thrill walking into a courtroom, uh, even though I'm now uh, you know out of practice. I, I, I feel a sense of pride to be involved in, in the process of our legal system. And so we started out, like Sam mentioned, we started out with the story um, of John Adams, and that was an effort to, to tell people that this is a basic right that we have uh, in this country, and uh, people have you know, men and women have fought and died to preserve that right. It's in me, it's in Sam, and that was what we wanted to write. That's how we wanted this book uh, to, you know, come out. And we wanted to say, you know, the Constitution is much more important than the visceral feelings that people have as a result of reading about a case like this or hearing about a case like this. It is common for people to think, just put this guy away, uh, you know, string him from the highest tree you can find, and let's be done with him. Unfortunately, that would start a precedent that would eat away at our system. And so, uh, you know, it's ingrained in me. It's certainly ingrained in Sam. And that was the purpose of the book. It was more uh, to really, you know, 
give the feelings that you have when you take on a case like this. And Judge Sam, the Gacy was eventually sentenced to death, and you know, there's some discussion in the book about the death penalty status, but I'm going to flip this question on its head for just a moment, because out here in California, we're dealing with a new proposition this fall that potentially could eliminate the death penalty. How would you encourage us to vote? You know, it's been eliminated here in Illinois. And to be honest, you know, as a retired judge, and, and I had death cases in front of me, and uh, fortunately for me, I never had the uh, I never had to sentence anybody to death. I sentenced people to natural life in prison without any possibilities of parole, which I think is a tougher sentence than death uh, for these guys. But um, you know, Danny's probably more of an advocate. Uh, I know he's more of an advocate against the death penalty. I probably still believe in certain instances uh, the death penalty is appropriate. But then you have to understand my background as a as a marine and you know the things I've done. Uh, uh, I might have a different different view of that. As a matter of fact, we had a Marine on the jury in the Gacy case, and I always said, and he wound up becoming the foreman. And after that, I always said, if I ever tried another death case, I would never put another Marine. I put one on there figuring we would have a connection and I'd be able to, to convince him uh, how we felt, but uh, we didn't. And uh, he led the charge for uh, putting Gacy to, to death. So I said I would never put another Marine on the jury. So we come from a different kind of mindset. I, I am not strongly opposed to complete abolition, or I'm not strongly opposed to imposing a death penalty. But I think Danny is, and we argue about that. I can honestly, you know, he's the liberal old, old hippie, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm more the, he's the comic guy, I'm the, I'm the McCain guy. So even though I, I'm a defense lawyer and people would consider me to be very liberal, I am very conservative in a lot of other ways. So I think Danny might have an entirely different opinion on that, though. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I, I, the reason that we don't have a death penalty here in the state of Illinois is because they found 13 guys who were not guilty who were on death row. And uh, originally, um, Governor Ryan, who ended up going to jail, but the, the good thing that he did is he put a moratorium on that, and, and that just never went away in this state. To, to realize that had nothing been done, there were 13 men waiting to be executed in our name, in the name of the people of the state of Illinois. Now, am I a, a screaming liberal? Uh, yeah, I'm a liberal. However, yes, you are. I'm not, yes, you are. I, I, if anybody <laughs> ever touched a hair on the head of one of my kids, they'd never make it to trial. I, I'm not, I'm not against the idea of, of vengeance. The only thing that I'm concerned about is that I don't want our society, I don't want our justice system to react to a crime like the victim of a crime does. I don't want our system to react like I would if somebody hurt one of my kids or 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 a person who's close to me, a member of my family. So uh, in answer to your question, I would say abolish the death penalty. Frankly, it is a worse uh, punishment to wind up in jail for life, and it's cheaper. It's but much more expensive to sentence someone to death. Danny, I don't want to interrupt you, but look at this situation again. And I've sentenced people to natural life in prison. And I'm, not, I'm just saying don't abolish it across the board because what if you have a guy who has been sentenced to natural life in prison, okay? And he goes around killing people in the prison. What, what do you, what does he have to lose? And the guy already has natural life in prison. He could go 
kill anybody he wants. Maybe he'll go in the hole or whatever else. But there should be some penalty more severe than what he has. And if we abolish death completely, this guy, you know, these some of these guys in jail are pretty bad individuals. Uh, they have nothing to lose by committing crimes. So I think at least in that instance and some other instances should be available. Interesting point. It's time for us to take a short break. We'll have more on defending a serial killer and the death penalty when Lawyer Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. But I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the, the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Uh, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are talking with the authors of the new book, John Wayne Gacy, Defending a Monster, uh, Sam L. Amarante, who defended Gacy, and, and Danny Broderick, uh, a lawyer who helped write the book. Uh, and Sam, uh, during during the trial of this case, uh, your your client wasn't always pleased with the with the the way you were mounting a defense. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, what your relationship was like with Gacy during the trial? You have to understand, Gacy was crazy. I mean, you know, he, uh, so he did a lot of strange, he did a lot of very strange things. But, uh, but we actually always got along well. Bob Mata, my uh, uh, our trial partner at the time, we, all, we got along with Gacy pretty well. And he just wanted to put out a show at one time, uh, said that he was against the insanity defense. He didn't know who he was anymore. He heard all doctors saying doctors saying all these things about him, and and he wanted to get other lawyers because uh, uh, because of that. And then after he had a little dialogue back and forth with Judge Garippo, who was a very very excellent uh, judge uh, sitting on a case, uh, he came back and said, "Oh, I like my lawyers. You know, I've got the best lawyers around here. I, you know, I want to keep them." So. You know, it was just, it was classic John Gacy. And again, I mean, it kind of, if you, when you read the book or if you read the book, you know that kind of personality he has. He was a total dichotomy in his personality. He would say one thing one second and flip it totally around the next, uh, the next second. 
sort of like some of the politicians they have out there. <laughs> Danny, you talked debates. a little bit in the book about uh, the victims of the families. Tell us about what they went through. The victims' uh, families? Yes. That's always tough. I mean, as you gentlemen know, you know, one of the toughest things I think a defense lawyer, even a prosecutor, or even a civil lawyer in some cases, he has to do is look into the eyes of the uh, the opposition's family and see what they're going through and, and your own your own client's family. And, and that's a tough thing, especially if you're a compassionate person. And, uh, I mean, these people, you know, for the most part, I mean, some, you know, some kids never were identified. So some families I didn't care at all, obviously, but for the ones who did care, the ones who were there, uh, you can't even comprehend the pain that they went through. And one gentleman in particular, just a total class act, Mr. Peace, who was the land's victim's father, he he came up to me, you know, in my thought, I never was scared of any threats or anything would happen, except that there would be a dad like me or Danny out there and want to take Gacy out and I'd get in the way of a bullet or a knife or something while they're trying to take Gacy out. So if anybody came up to you, with, there was a little apprehension. Well, Mr. Peace came up to me in one of the breaks at trial one day, and he said, uh, Mr. Amaranti, I just would like you to know that I know you're doing a job, and I have no malice toward you, uh, and I just want you to know that my family and I understand as, as much as we hurt and as much as we, we just hate being here every day and we feel the loss of our son beyond words. I just want to let you know that I respect you for what you do, and I, I have no ill will toward you. I thought that was one of the classiest things. And in the middle of a, of, a, of a sea of garbage, this man came up to me and said that. And I could imagine the courage, the, the fortitude, that, the compassion that took for him to do that. And he's, I believe he's deceased now, And uh, uh, but it was just uh, an amazing thing. But facing the families is tough, really tough. And they went through a lot. They still do, still are. James, yeah. one of the things that you uh, did after this after this case uh, in your career was to uh, push uh, legislation through in Illinois called the Missing, Missing Child Recovery Act of 1984, and that's that's gone on to become a model for other legislation. Can you talk about that? Um, yes, um, I read it, Danny. I, I kind of like to talk about things. Uh, <laughs> Dan, do you want to address that with the ice search law? Yeah, uh, I remember actually I was there when Sam was doing the. Um, uh, writing up that law and, and trying to come up with the title. The iSearch stood for Illinois State Enforcement Agency for Recovering Children. Um, Sam was running for state senator at the time, and he saw this as an opportunity. He had, he had made connections in Springfield. His uh, connection to this case had made him super aware of the fact that uh, when you reported a kid in those days, when you reported a kid missing, they wouldn't even look for the uh, the person for 48 hours. They they assumed everybody was a runaway, etc. And this law ended that 48 hour period. It uh, put together a joint task force that was statewide, and um, uh, it it changed the process of looking for lost or missing children and or adults. Uh, and it was the precursor, frankly, to the uh, Amber Alert. It, it was uh, other states began uh, adopting these principles and, and the, this law. And when all the states had a law 
similar to this, they were uh, then able to connect all the states together, and it, it became what we now know as an Amber Alert. So um, that came as a result of Sam's connection to this case. He 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 doesn't like to talk about it that much because it sounds like he's blowing his own horn. But this guy has done some amazing things in this state. So. And, and we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, uh, Judge Sam, let's throw it over to you first for your final thoughts and your contact information. Well, thank you for allowing us uh, to be on today. We appreciate it and certainly respect what you do. And, um, you know, in everything we do, there's a, uh, there's a lesson, something to be learned, and hopefully a silver lining. The silver lining in the Gacy case, of course, was... Uh, the ice search law that you just talked about, and a lot of kids have been recovered, found because of that. And uh, I know I will always be a true believer, and I'm sure, I'm sure Danny will too. So thank you for the opportunity, guys. And read the book. Tell your people thank read the you. book. Absolutely read the book. And there's a documentary coming out. Uh, look for that. There's Facebook pages. Just just put in, uh, just search John Wayne Gacy defending a monster. There's there's information regarding a documentary and a future Hollywood film. Excellent. And Danny, if our listeners want to reach out to you, how would they get a hold of you? Danny Broderick at yahoo.com. Great. Well, thank you both very much for being on the show today. It's been an excellent, uh, excellent discussion uh, and, and a very tough one. So, Bob, any final thoughts from you? Uh, no, I. I uh, um Nothing really to add. I'd remind our listeners that the uh, the book is uh, John Wayne Gacy Defending a Monster, and uh, encourage them all to go out and read it. It's an excellent yeah, it's book. available on Amazon. It. Danny Thanks did a fantastic job Sam. writing it along with Sam, and, and it's, a, it's a riveting story of a very unbelievable situation. Uh, I mean, obviously it happened, but it's just like, how could it happen? And, and the book explores that and gives you an awful lot of information. So Danny and, and Sam did a wonderful job on it. It's good reading. We Thank want to remind you, our listeners that uh, they can check out uh, and get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows along with this one, Lawyer to Lawyer, on iTunes. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll see you then. And we'll talk to you then. See you. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.